Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This week I have a fascinating case to share with you. I was scrolling through Facebook one day and came across the disappearance of Thomas Stephen Blake, who went missing from Big Spring, Texas in early August of 1987. Tom was a truck driver, and after he went missing, his big rig was found idling with a full load of onions in a rest area several miles from Big Spring, where he was last seen. Inside the truck, police found his cigarettes, ID, and other personal items. Tom was with a woman at the time who was presumably also missing. I reached out to Tom's sister, Linda Bird, to talk to her about her brother's case. What happened to Thomas Blake? Did he leave of his own volition with a new love? Was he running from trouble, or even worse, the cartel? Or was he simply looking to start life anew? Linda was kind enough to share with me personal journal entries from her mother, who searched for answers to what happened to her son. Linda has since taken up the cause and is looking for any information that may help her find her brother. Here's my chat with Linda. Can you tell me, like, the basics, like, when and where Tom went missing, and, you know, when you and your family first found out? So Tom was a truck driver for MCI Trucking Company, and this was in 1987. And he was his rig was found running near Big Spring, Texas, on August 4th, 1987. Uh, the truck was parked in a primitive resting area. Um, if I remember correctly, there was a phone booth and literally nothing else. There was no bathroom services. It was just a wide spot in the road. Uh, the state police officer had told the sheriff that he had passed by the truck um, for a couple of days prior, and nobody was there, but the truck was running. Uh, he didn't think a whole lot about it because he was hauling onions, and he might have been, you know, using the venting cert, you know, using the vents. 
Um, but after two days, um, he checked the truck and all of Tom's personal effects were in the truck, even his cigarettes, uh, which he would go nowhere without. But he was gone. And they suspected foul play and um, they did helicopter searches and, you know, started their investigation. Um, on August the 4th, my mom kind of got a heads up because the trucking company called and asked if they knew where Tom was. And so they said, well, we'll see what we can help you with. And they used contact, uh, they tried to contact him through a message board. It's like a phone in voicemail that truckers used back then, um, prior to cell phone services and all of that, but they, they got no response. Uh, the next morning, my parents got a phone call from the sheriff's office advising them that he was missing and the truck was running and everything was in the truck. And of course, my mom was very concerned and she called me real early in the morning and let my siblings know. And then um, they promised her that they would do the helicopter search. And so the next day they contacted her back and said, there's no, no luck. So the following day, my brother and my father and I drove to Big Springs and we drove up and down those dirt roads. We looked in drain pipes, we looked in ditches, we looked along the sides of the dirt roads, you know, hoping that maybe we could find him. And that's uh, that was kind of the beginning of the whole search. Um. What's Big Spring, Texas like? Like, I'd never heard of it until I talked to you. Okay, it's a real small town um, near Amarillo. Um, but it's a really, at the time, it was a very, very small town. And there's, being a small town, they actually even had a smaller town that was uh, closer to the truck stop called Coahoma. Uh, my dad called it Goahoma. We used to tell Tom to Goahoma. But... Um, <laughs> So that's how I remember the name, but it was just a real tiny wide spot in the road, a couple of convenience stores, a little motel, and a lot of desert. And Big Springs was slightly larger. They had the sheriff's department. Um, I remember kind of a little bit of a main street. I don't even remember um, stoplights, just a real small, small town in a big desert. Yeah, I looked at pictures online, and that's definitely uh, the vibe you get from it. And before we get into a bit more about the disappearance, I'm wondering, what was your relationship with your brother like, you know, both before he went missing and kind of leading up to to when he disappeared? Okay, um, my brother and I were, we were, we were very, very close. Um, You know, we have a close family, but... um, he and I had kind of had a special relationship. Uh, we were both kind of, we didn't quite fit in the world. We were both kind of felt like outcasts. We didn't have a whole lot of friends. I was painfully shy and, um, he was just didn't fit. Um, but he had a few friends and he would pull me in with his friends knowing that I didn't feel comfortable in my own skin. And he just kind of made sure that I was okay. He always made me feel like I was a part of his life. Um, my brother and sister were, they were like very active in school. They were, they had their clubs, you know, and they were just, they were 
achievers and we we weren't <laughs> so we kind of stuck together we supported each other um he was the perfect big brother for me because uh, I kind of needed to be accepted and he did too and so we we just we focused on each other a lot and uh anytime the family were split up into partner pairs or whatever it was he and me together and um I was a part of his group and he was the cool big brother to my friends. Uh, we just, uh, we bonded very, very closely. And as adults, um, I think he was a little bit jealous of my husband. They didn't get along as well because I think I, he took him away from me or took me away from him. But, um, even as adults, uh, we always kept in touch. Uh, he, uh, was stationed in the Philippines. He was in the Marines for a period of time. And he wrote me letters. I was still in high school and he sent me money. He he paid me for good grades and promised me guitars and just really tried to make me feel special. And I will, for he might've been, might not have been the greatest person in the world, but he was the best brother that I could have asked for. So what was last time when we were, when we were chatting, um, you told me about the last time you saw him or, or I guess both the last time you saw him, but also the time you were supposed to see him and didn't. Can you tell me about those two instances? Sure. Yeah. He, um, uh, the last night that I saw him, he came through town and he, um, he had a girl with him that he had just met. But he wanted me to go out and have drinks with him. And I told Tom, I can't, you know, I I was, I had been working and my mom was watching my kids for me. And um, he wanted me to go out and have drinks with him and his new friend. And I told him that I couldn't. And he was pretty insistent. He said, come on, just, just one drink. We'll just, just go have just one drink. I said, you know, my kids, look, my kids are asleep on the couch. I got to take them home. And I told him, no big deal. You know, you come through all the time. I'll see you next time. And uh, he's okay. And then the next day I was working at a fabric store and we did a huge sale about twice a year where it would just get incredibly busy. And the next day was one of those days. And we, um, he came into the store um, to say goodbye on his way out of town. And he came into the back office where I was counting the registers down for the mid midpoint um, draw for the registers. And I had the counter was, I mean, my desk was just covered with money. And he said, let's go get a Coke. <laughs> I said, Joe, I can't. Look, I can't. I can't leave this money laying on the desk. And I just, I felt bad. And I kept telling him, I can't. And he said, please, just a quick Coke. And I told him, don't worry about it. You know, I'll see you next time you come through. It's no big deal. We'll get together then. And he was very disappointed. And I felt bad, but I didn't understand why. I really do believe that he was going to tell me goodbye. And then shortly after, uh, he goes missing and... The circumstances, yeah. one of the reasons I was drawn to your brother's disappearance is I, I think the circumstances are particularly interesting and even strange 
Um, the truck was running. It was in this town, Big Spring. He'd been in, El, I think recently he'd been in El Paso. He had a girl with him. Like, can you kind of just lay out like what you understood about, um, you know, you kind of alluded to it earlier, but what you understood about his disappearances and all the facets. Like, I know there were sightings too at one point. Um, and you and your family, I think, looked yeah. into that. Yes. Um, so, uh, as I said before, the truck was running, nobody there. They suspected foul play. They searched. Um, so my dad and my brother and I, um, I had had a, um, I'd had a dream about him. And so that left me very, very unsettled. Um, I dreamed that he was injured. And so my mother wanted me to go with them when they went to search for him. And she said, just, you know, follow, follow your gut, see where it takes you. So we went to Big Springs, um, a couple of days after, you know, after the helicopter search. And we went up and down the roads and searched and searched. And we finally gave up. You know, we were kind of defeated. And we stopped at a convenience store in Coahoma. And we were in the store talking about, you know, not finding him. Um, and they had newspapers out that had front page news about him. And we, you know, made a comment that, you know, he had made the front page and, we needed to call mom. Well, the clerk was listening and she, she asked us, are you, know, are you talking about this guy in the news? And we told her, yeah, it's my brother and son. And uh, she said, well, he's been coming in over the past few days. Um, so he's, you know, he came in this morning and he's with a girl. And so of course, you know, we right away jumped on that, wanted to know more details. And she said that um, over the past few days, he had been coming in and buying food supplies and that he was in a gray car that had New Mexico plates on it and that he was with a girl. Um, now, the girl that I met the last night I saw him was not a part of the investigation at all because they had told us that they were going to part ways, that she was just catching a ride to a certain place and then she was going to go one way and he was going to go the other. So we had no reason to even mention her to the sheriff's department. And this clerk told us, um, she described her and this girl, um, she was a little bit shorter. Um, you know, he, she described her hair and then she described a Bell's palsy to her face, which is rare and which matched this Jennifer girl that my brother was with to a T. So at that point, we knew, okay, this girl was still with him, and he had been in that store. And so she told, the clerk told us, well, he's been staying in the motel down the street. So um, she said that that morning, they'd come in and bought an ice chest with ice and sandwich stuff, and, you know, looked like they were heading on a trip. So, of course, we hot-footed it right straight to the motel and asked about it. And they said, you know, they wouldn't give us any information. Well, at that time, when you signed into a motel, you had to sign into the registry. And their registry was on the counter, wide open. So, of course, you know, while my brother and dad are talking, I'm kind of looking at the names. And I saw a name that combined the first and last name of people that had been in Tom's life before. So I thought, okay, she used a fake name. 
the first name of an old girlfriend and the last name of an ex-wife or vice versa. And so right then we knew that he had staged this and we felt like he left on his own volition. So we went by back by the sheriff's department and told him what we learned. He didn't, I don't know if he didn't believe it or if he was, you know, just holding his cards close to his chest or I don't know, but he didn't seem too terribly interested. But, um, yeah, so we really do believe that he probably was still alive um, at that point and on his way out of town. Careful with with how I ask these questions because we can quickly get off track and down some rabbit holes about what may have happened to your brother. But let's start with this, uh, and we'll get into some theories a little bit. You said it sounds like, based on what you just told me, that he left on his own volition. Um, let's start with, um, you know, him him perhaps leaving. Like, what what sort of evidence or gut feeling did you have that maybe he left to take off with this woman and maybe? start anew like were there any were there any factors in his life that would you know would lead him there like you mentioned he he was divorced um you know i think you mentioned at some point maybe in, in the pre-interview that he had you know he had financial struggles at a certain point like what would be his motive for for doing something like that um i know that he was um very depressed because uh, a girl that he um had fallen in love with um had had a baby and was had vanished out of his life that she broke up with him and there was really not any chance of reconciliation and um he also was in a lot of debt um he probably owned owed about to about twenty two thousand dollars or more that's what's in the journals anyway and uh they uh so we kind of felt like maybe he felt like he needed a fresh start we felt like he needed to um, maybe get a different identity, uh, run away from his debts. Um, he may have felt like his life was so difficult right then that he just needed to be somebody else and be somewhere else. So we kind of felt like that that might have been part of it. And then, you know, there there's so many possibilities, but he did have reason to, to feel like he needed to not be him for a while. Another possibility um, we spoke of uh, quite in depth when we first chatted was, Mm -hmm. well, he had, he had a pretty lengthy, I think what you said, it was a week or so stopover in El Paso before moving on to this next trucking job. And you said that was strange and that there was perhaps, and I I believe it might've been your husband who, who brought forward this theory, but perhaps, you know, something maybe more sinister was about, in that um, maybe your brother was in draw, involved in, you know, either shipping um, or or maybe perhaps even undercover and, and involved in the drug trade as, you know, El Paso and Big Spring are very close to the border. Can you tell me about how that theory came about and kind of what maybe anecdotal evidence you think we might have that point towards that? Absolutely. Yes, he was. Um, he had a layover in El Paso. And uh, when we first spoke, I thought he was already loaded, and he was not. He had a he had an empty truck when he was in El Paso, and he had been in Atlanta uh, for his birthday on July 24th. And for whatever reason, 
he came to El Paso and had um, a several day layover. And um, then um, all of a sudden he got a load of onions to take back to Georgia. And, you know, looking back, that's kind of a ridiculous thing because Georgia is the home of the Vidalia onion. And so, you know, to take onions there seems pointless. But uh, at the time, I did not put together at all. Uh, I just knew that he had a stop in in El Paso, and then he came through and then headed to Georgia. Well, my husband is a policeman, and he... um, went to a drug interdiction school and learned about markers for running drugs. And Tom fit that profile pretty closely. Um, number one, he had a layover in El Paso. And during that time in the you know, <laughs> mid to late 80s, Juarez was a major drug smuggling hub for the cartel. And a layover in El Paso is, El Paso is a border town and it, uh, is across the border from Juarez. Uh, he was hauling produce to Georgia across the country, and produce is rarely taken that far because of the low price and the perishability. Uh, so it's uh, kind of a a little bit of an earmarker, and that uh, he learned that onions are very commonly used to just to conceal the odor of marijuana. Um, he was driving. Uh, with a car that could intervene if he were pulled over because he was in the truck and the girl was in the car. And it's uh, what my husband learned was that it's very common for a truck driver who's hauling drugs to drive with a runner. And that way, if he gets pulled over and the police are talking to him, the second car could screen past or do something to draw the attention away and have the officer go after them instead of the truck. Uh, so all of these kind of open up the possibility that he might have been working with the Mexican cartel. Yeah, and I want to say too, because like when I had heard that about the onions, I had never heard it before, but I Googled it. And to this day, that's a tactic used by drug runners to put cocaine, uh, marijuana, you know, fentanyl, whatever it is, into trucks with fresh produce to... Uh, cross the border with not only to conceal it, but like you said, to conceal the smell as well. Um, and so it's something that is very prevalent and very common. So I think your, your husband and your theory on that is, is really, really interesting. And I guess then like there's not a lot of, a lot of other options. Um, when it comes to what happened potentially to your brother, like, is there any, are there any other theories that jump out to you or, or, or are those kind of the two that kind of stick with you? Well, there's, um, you know, we wonder about if he, um, we had a couple of theories. Um, the first theory is that um, my mother's theory was that, you know, he just couldn't be him anymore. The depression, you know, the sorrow, the um, the, the bills just made him go be somebody else. Um, there is the theory that he might have been running drugs and that uh, my brother was extremely intelligent. Um and he might have felt like he could outsmart the cartel. So, you know, we worried that uh, it's possible that he double-crossed them and double-crossed them about as far as Big Spring before they caught up with him. Um, and that he may have been killed by the cartel. The other, and that may, it's perhaps 
possible that this Jennifer person was a part of that. Uh, another theory is that he might have been running drugs for the cartel and that um, she was actually helping him with witness protection programs. You know, that would definitely cause him to no longer be using any of his identity, any of his information. Um, I know that you can also get uh, fake IDs and all of that from Mexico too, to support a new identity. So, you know, any one of those is likely, um, any one of them is possible. I think the most likely is that it was, it involved the drug cartels, um, whether he went undercover or went incognito with them or against them. I think that's the big question. I want to kind of say this too, because I know probably some people listening might think that there's not a whole lot of evidence, you know, that points to your brother being in with the cartel. And there really, really isn't. But I do think the context is important, like both the geographical context and the historical context. Like I've been looking into it and, you know, just the geographical proximity alone of the routes your brother would have been driving and, you know, being in places like El Paso, which are, are right on the border with Juarez. And during the 1980s, when, you know, drugs like cocaine are at their apex, uh, you know, I, I think it's I don't think it's unreasonable to think that given some of the, the evidence, anecdotal evidence, at least, that it's a possibility. And I think that, you know, you discovered these journals recently that your mother um, kept, which are super meticulous. You've shared some with me and the the attention to detail is astounding. Like, I, I think she has a whole half page um, written out about what this Jennifer girl looked like when she met her. And, and um, it's really impressive. And so. I, I hope, and, and we'll get talking about the journals here in a minute, but I hope as, as we both go through those that, um, you know, we'll find some information that will support any theory. Um, I think that's your hope, but let's start with, with what these journals are and how you found them. Cause they're, they're, they're incredible. Yeah. Yeah. My mom was pretty incredible. Um, she died in 2009 and, um, she had not only written journals, she had photo journals and she just, she was just the master researcher and the master um, collector and memories and everything. She, um, her journals include uh, almost daily journals from the 1930s until she died. Um, and she had a whole notebook just dedicated to the story. Um, she searched on a limited basis but she never really pursued it, um, partly because she truly believed that if Tom wanted to be gone, that we should honor his wishes, that she, she was a very, very live and let live kind of person. And she would not want to infringe on his desire to be gone. She also alluded to a couple of things about um, that if his goal was to get away from his life, that if we brought him back into his life, that that would thwart his efforts. Um, but she did a lot of research on, she was extremely um, intuitive and she was very, very, she noticed things. And so when she met Jennifer, she only met her for probably, she only talked to her for maybe four hours. But um, Jennifer shared a lot of information about her family that my mother uh, used to try to do some digging and find Tom because she thought maybe if I can find Jennifer, 
I can find Tom. And uh, so she has a detailed description, not only of Jennifer, but of the things that Jennifer told her. Um, she told her that um, her father was instrumental in developing the Parvo vaccine for dogs. And so later on, there's research in there about the Parvo vaccine and just everything that she did and to the day with Tom and with Jennifer and with her research is documented in detail in this notebook. I think I sent you about 81 pages and I left out a lot of the financial stuff and the, the stuff that was repeated. Yeah. It's easily over 150 pages long. Yeah, it's incredible. Um, I was looking at it last night and we were kind of going back and forth and I was astounded like old newspaper clippings too she kept and uh yeah, it's I think it's what's probably a little early for us to delve into the contents of it because I think we're both still sifting through it. Um I will say though the Jennifer angle is interesting because again, the detail in there, you, I think you said you tried to track her down as well and you haven't had any luck kind of identifying who that woman might, might be or have been. Correct. Um, her last name, um, uh, I think she said her last name was Downing and I did do some research. Um, of course my mother's research was kind of prior to a lot of the, the huge Facebook explosion, but she, uh, I did look and I did find a couple of veterinarians with the, the right name in. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. California, and I did try to reach out and got no response. Um, so... Um, I have not been, I have not been lucky in finding her at all. Um, my mother contacted the U.S. Department of Agriculture, I think, and told them the story. She wrote them a letter and asked them about um, the Parvo vaccine and who had developed it, looking to see if she could find the parents of her so that she could contact them and say, hey, you know, is this man in my, in your daughter's life? You know, have you, can I talk to her? And, um, she was not successful either, but the USDA really did do some investigation for her and contacted, um, different people. And it was kind of funny that when she sent out those letters about two weeks later, we had some, um, 
questionable sightings of Tom. And we felt like that she got close and that Tom pushed back and, you know, made sure to let her know, I'm okay, leave me alone. Um, He knew his mother very well. And he knew that she would not interfere with his life, but that if he gave her just enough to know that he was okay, that she would probably back off. But yeah, her, her, her investigation, she should have been a detective. You just mentioned something, uh, very interesting that when your mother was doing this research, one thing I wanted to say too, I was reading some of the responses she got from some of the people she reached out to in the institutions and they were also helpful and nice. Um, I don't know why. Yeah. I don't know why that struck me. Maybe it's just because it's not, I don't feel like it's that way anymore, but um, like some of the letters that she got in return from these agencies and I think, you know, communications people, like they were very detailed and very kind and like they clearly had tried to, tried to help her. So I thought that was um, really amazing. Uh, it's probably also yes. indicative of how amazing your mother was and how well her letters were written and worded and crafted. Um, so, but, but you said she started sending these letters out and doing some digging. And then I think there were some people or some things that happened that maybe led, like you were just saying your mother and your family to believe that Tom was kind of signaling that he was actually okay. And he didn't want to be found. Can you tell me a bit more about that? And some of the stranger things that happened that made your family think that he was trying to maybe, you know, communicate that to the family. Yes. Um, so he had a really close friend um, from childhood um, named Lyndall. And I have reached out to Lyndall and I haven't gotten a response back to see if he would be interested in also participating in shedding some light on this. Um, but so he had this friend Lyndall and Lyndall's grandfather raised him. And so he was quite elderly. I think he was in his 90s, 93, I think she said. And shortly after this, um, Mr. Latham, Lyndall's grandfather, called my mother. And it was early in the morning. And he was so excited. He loved Tom. Um, he just, he loved him. And he, he was so excited. He said, Tom called me. And he said, he's okay. And he just uh, wanted to see how I was. And so my mom, you know, was very excited. He he told her that he was in Oklahoma City and that, you know, everything was going well, that Tom was fine. So my mom, uh, she got very excited and my dad really didn't. He said, okay, the guy's 93 years old. It's a coincidence. You know, he he probably dreamed it. And then um, it wasn't very long after that that Lyndall himself contacted my mom and told her that he was at a lake um, south of San Antonio and he was fishing and he looked up from the lake over his fishing pole and probably his beer too and saw Tom driving down the freeway in a U-Haul truck and he claimed that he jumped into his car, caught up to the U-Haul truck and had a conversation through the window. And Tom wouldn't pull over said, no, I'm busy. I'm headed to Corpus Christi, um, but nice to see you and um, everything's fine. And um, I, no, that's not true. <laughs> but it's just, it's too far-fetched. It's, I, it's not true. Um, and at that time, that made me believe that um, Tom had confided in Lyndall in what he was doing and that Lyndall knew who he was, 
knew where he was and that they kind of concocted this story um, to put my mother's mind at ease. Um, one of the other things that um, we both alluded to earlier was Tom did have a family. Um, he had, uh, it's very tragic what, what happens to, to his ex-wife yeah. and, and his daughter. And when you told me it was, it's quite heart wrenching, but your mother actually did get to, um, have a reunion with, um, with Tom's daughter. And I'm wondering, can you tell me about that? But can you also tell me about, you know, his ex-wife and her health condition and obviously how, you know, that impacted the daughter as well. Like, I think it's, um, you know, it's important context here in terms of maybe establishing Tom's motive or, um, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, it's a, it is a tragic story and I'll try to hold back the tears. I can't promise anything. Um, so Tom met this woman and he never did marry her because she was already married. Um, but he did fall in love with her and they did live together for, um, quite a time, um, at least a year, uh, so Tom met this woman, Sharon, and she was, um, she was evil. Um, you know, I, I, if her family hears this, I'm sorry, but she was not good to us. She was not good to him. She was not good. Um, but they got together and apparently he found her at a truck stop. Tom was the type of person that, um, if he met somebody in need, he would do everything he could to help them. And he would ask his family to do everything that they could to help him help them. And he picked her up from this truck stop. Supposedly her husband had beaten her up and thrown her out of the truck. And I don't know if any of that is true, but he brought her to Alamogordo and they began living together in Alamogordo. And, um, she became pregnant, and they, uh, like I said, she was not a good person. Um, she was um, she was hateful to my mother and just ugly. And when she was pregnant in November, the baby was due in April, and in November, she and Tom left Alamogordo and went to Texas to stay with her sister for a while. And her ex-husband was living in, I think, Sioux City, um, Iowa, or I can't remember, Sioux City somewhere. And she, uh, but they left. And when it was came time for the baby to be born, she told him that she would put her ex-husband's name on the birth certificate unless Tom basically housed her and took care of her. And so he did. Um, he, uh, he set her up in a little trailer and got her all, you know, everything was fine. And then the baby was born and he called us and he was just so ecstatic that this child had been born and described her and was just, just in love. And as time went on, she went back and forth. Um, she never did put his name on the birth certificate and she told him that he could see her as long as he paid. And like I said, she was not a nice person. Well, um, so time went on and in 
Let's see. Jamie Jo was born on April 30th. And towards the end of May, he came through Alamogordo and he was distraught. And he uh, was trying to locate Sharon and he couldn't find her. And finally, he got a hold of her sister and he got off the phone and he told my mom, I will never see that baby again. And that was the last we heard of her. And so that was it, you know, towards the end of May. And then in June and July, he was trying to figure out some way to get out of debt, you know, debating about bankruptcy and count credit counseling and all of these things. And then in August, he vanished. Well, two years after he vanished, um, we had reason to start being very concerned about him. So I told my mom, if we find Sharon, we will find him because he's got to be, he's got to be in contact with her because she's not hounding us for money. So she must, she, he must, she must know where he is. So I contacted, we had all of the phone records, you know, my mother and her amazing bookkeeping and record keeping. She had all of the phone numbers that Sharon had called using her phone uh, when they were in Alamogordo. And so we figured out who her brother, which number went to her brother and sister, sister-in-law, and I called them and they told me Sharon is dead and hung up on me. So I thought, yeah, sure. I didn't believe them. So I went back and found the phone numbers for her ex-mother-in-law. And I called the mother-in-law. And the mother-in-law told me that a few weeks after Jamie Jo was born, that Sharon had a rare heart condition and had to have surgery. And she had a condition that would cause an aortic dissection. And she died on the operating table. And that Jamie Jo had been adopted by her um by her brother and her sister-in-law. And I think that's what Tom found out. But, and broke his heart. So after those two years, my mom called um, Sharon's brother and told him that if she ever needed anything, that we were here, that we would not intrude that we had no rights, that, you know, we would not, and we did not want to, we didn't want to make waves in Jamie's life. So uh, he was grateful and said, you can call once a year or sometimes and see if she's okay. And if we need anything, we'll let you know, but don't hold your breath. Uh, so my mother never contacted them again. And then um, another, eight, another 18 years now have passed. And I had, you know, you know, MySpace is becoming popular and Facebook and all of those. And um, so I decided that uh, I would try to find her. So I tried over the couple of years. I kept putting her name in. And so I finally said something to my mom about it. And she said, well, how are you spelling the last name? And I was spelling it, it had a common spelling. And uh, I was spelling it wrong. 
So I was online and I had a MySpace account. So I typed in her name and um, up popped a picture of my brother with long blonde hair. She looked exactly like him. So I got very excited and I uh, met, she was online and she was, it showed that she was online right then. So I, I couldn't contain myself. I sent her a message and I said, please, I'm not a stalker. I promise you. Did you have a mother named Sharon? And did she die at, when you were a baby? And she came back and said, yes, who are you? And I sent her back another message immediately. And I said, I promise you, please don't disregard me. I promise you, I am not a stalker, but I believe I am your aunt. And I told her, you know, your father um, was, uh, you know, was with your mom at the time that she, that you were born and you looked just like him. And she responded about a half an hour later. And I thought, oh, you know, that half an hour, I just thought, oh, she thinks I'm one of those whack jobs and she's not going to come back. Well, she had stopped and asked her, her adopted mother and her adopted mother had never told her the truth. And she told her the truth. So we were able to fly her to Alamogordo and she got to meet her family. That was probably the best thing I ever did for my mom. And when my mom died, Jamie Jo came and took her turn on death watch. So that my mom didn't die alone. So yeah, it was very tragic. And um, so we kept in touch and, you know, we were, we became close and we talked on the phone a lot. I sent her the few things that Tom had sent me. Um, I had a jade necklace that he gave me and I sent it to Jamie Jo and said, this is from your father. He would want you to have it. And um, a couple of years later, her mother called me and told me that Jamie Jo had died from the same condition as her mother. So yeah, kind of a kind of a tragic tale. You certainly understand why Tom would want to to just go away for a while. Yeah, um, it's it is a really tragic tale. I think it's it is nice in some ways that your your mother and you and some of the family got to spend some time with Tom's daughter and. Yeah, it's really, really heavy the way everything played out, and um, yeah, it's it's hard to find words. Really, it's it's an incredible, incredibly sad story. It truly is. 
But um, my mother always wondered, and all through, and through her journals, um, a couple of times, like during on uh, Jamie's birthday, uh, she would she would make a comment about um, wishing that she could get to know her granddaughter. And um, she, in fact, there's one journal entry where she was, um, you know, other grandchildren were born between, during that period of time. And she made a comment about, she had a shirt that um, one of the daughter-in-laws had made for her. And she had put like little apples on it with all of the grandkids' names. And I had cross-stitched her like a little placemat looking thing that she kept on her refrigerator. And she added grandkids, you know, I left a couple of hearts open for future grandchildren. And she added Jamie Jo. And in one of the journals, she said something about, um, I think she said something about um, missing Tom and stopping and taking the time to add another apple. Jamie it kind of came brought Tom full circle absolutely going forward um, I know like you said you've been going through these journals and you know trying to understand the information that's in them and potentially any leads Um, where do you go from here and I guess where do we go from here in terms of you know what can people listening do to help you um like what sort of information do you think you need to to find out what happened to your brother um i don't hold out a whole lot of hope that he's still alive um i think that um but i would love to know what happened there was a an interesting lead in my mom's journal where um uh, and I think this is probably where it's gonna, where we're gonna find out, is through something like this. Um, my mother had received a letter addressed to a Thomas Black, and it was from Burlington Trucking Company, which apparently, um, for some reason, she she understood that it was a subsidiary of MCI Trucking that Tom worked for, and so. Uh, and the envelope was thin, and she wouldn't open it because she knew she had to return it, but uh, she was curious, so she you know, held it up to a light and saw that it was addressed to a Thomas Black and that it dealt with his logs, and they were cautioning him because his logs were indicating that he was, um, that his average speeds were too high and that he needed to be careful. So it was a caution letter. So she contacted the company and spoke with the dispatcher and told her situation. And they gave him, they said, well, that was, that should, that letter should not have come to that address. And they gave her, uh, my mother lived at Fort Ten Ridgecrest in Alamogordo. And, um, she said the, that should have gone to an address at Fort Ten Ridgecrest in Magnolia, Arkansas. And we also have a P.O. box number for this. If you think this is your son, and she gave her the addresses. So my mom sent um, a letter to both. And um, we have the envelope 
and I showed it to my daughter-in-law, who has been very curious about this as well, and she's somewhat of a researcher. And she uh, immediately got online and traced the P.O. box, and it came back to a trucking company. And so she um, found the phone number to the trucking company, called the trucking company, and spoke to the owner. And this happened yesterday. Uh, and the, the owner said, well, I have been the owner of this company since 1983, and we've had this P.O. box for this long. And uh, he pulled up his records, and we told him it was in 1992 that she got the letter from this trucking company. And uh, he said, we don't have any Thomas Blake or Thomas Black or Stephen, because or, Tom's middle name was Stephen. He kind of thought about all the possible combinations and said we did not have any employees. And she described him because Tom's description is distinctive. He was six foot seven and weighed 165 pounds. So somebody that tall and thin kind of stands out. He had starking, he had stark green eyes and he had a distinctive mole on his face and he had had um, severely butt teeth. So you knew you put all that together and that's not a face you forget easily. And so he said he did not recall anybody with that with those features, but that his wife and his brother was a part of the company and that he would be contacting them and asking them if anybody, you know, perhaps under a different name um, that might have worked for them that match that description. So he's going to put that out to them and let us know if anything comes back. Uh, I think that's how we're going to find him is just people kind of spreading the word, spreading his description, um, spreading his story. And somebody is going to say, you know, I worked with a guy that matched that description and he was kind of upset about losing a daughter or, you know, not having access to a daughter anymore. I think that's what's that's what's going to make the difference. Yeah, and um, we should clarify too that Tom's case is still very much open, and apparently, I, I think it's the Big Spring, is it the sheriff's office or the I can't remember the 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 uh, proper uh, noun of the of the organization that's investigating, but they are still supposed to be looking into it, and I imagine there must be a police file around. So I think you mentioned you're going to reach out to them as well if you haven't already. I have. Um, I wasn't sure oh, until I saw the journals. Um, I couldn't remember if it was the police department or the sheriff's department, but um, I contacted the sheriff's department and spoke with the cold case file uh, detective. And he told me that um, he, is, he needs to get clarification from his supervisors as to how much information he can give me because I'm the sister. Um, his parents are no longer alive. And I didn't tell him that I just told him, well, see what you can do. Um, two years after he disappeared, my father called them and asked if he could have his personal effects. And at that time they told him no, that it was still very much an open investigation. And I called um, within the past couple of years one time, I thought, you know, I, I wonder if there's anything left. And so I called and they told me that they had thrown everything away, which my husband being a police officer told me that's probably um, somebody 
probably didn't really know what they were saying because that's not something that you do. But um, so I, I'm not sure that that would be accurate. But I do have a call into them and they're, um, I'm sure they'll get back to me. They seem very nice and very helpful. And I'm hoping to get the police report. Uh, we never got one to begin with and I don't know why. It would have been in my mom's journals. Um, and I don't know if we didn't ask for one or what. I know that they did come and take my mom's DNA. Uh, they had my husband come and do her DNA because he was a detective here at the time. And the cold case officer called DPS or called my mom and told her she needed to go get the DNA test done. And um, so um, my husband did facilitate that and get his DNA um, out there. So uh, who knows, you know, I don't know don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. I was just going to say, um, when we do another episode on this, uh, I hope we have more information and something to follow up on. And it sounds like that's a strong possibility. So, uh, I think the journals are key and, and reaching out to the police as well. And I just want to thank you for, for sharing Tom's story and, and the people in his life. It's, it's quite dramatic. Um, it really, really is. And so it'd be nice, I think for you and, you know, everyone else who, who knew Tom to, to figure out what happened, like you said, to get some sort of closure, right? It would be very nice to get some closure. Um, I don't know if he's, you know, it's a, it's absolutely entirely possible that he is still alive. Um, my, uh, my heart doesn't feel him anymore. Um, and, you know, I just, I'm not, I, I don't hold out a lot of hope that he's alive. But it would be nice to be able to um, to put to put him to rest and to to be able to say, you know, your death, honor his death. If you know anything about Thomas Blake's disappearance, please reach out to me or Linda Bird. Linda is still in the process of sorting out who is handling her brother's case. Once we find that out. I'll make sure to add that info in the description below. If you enjoyed this episode and want to show appreciation, you can buy me a coffee at the link in the description. If you want to support the podcast on a monthly basis, you can head to the Patreon. For $5 a month, you get ad and sponsor-free episodes, exclusive content, and early access to all new episodes of the podcast. I'll also post monthly updates on what's to come, so you know what I have in the works and what to expect. Thanks for listening to the Missing and Unexplained podcast. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.